Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Maura Murray was born on May 4th, 1982 in Hanson, Massachusetts. By the age of 21, she was 5'7 and 120 pounds. On February 9th, 2004, in Haverhill, New Hampshire, Mara Murray crashed her car on Route 112. There has never been a confirmed sighting of Mora since that night. If you have any information on the whereabouts of Mora Murray, please contact the New Hampshire State Police. This is the Missing Maura Murray Podcast. Welcome back to the show. How's it going, Lance? Doing well. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing great. We're about to have true crime author James Renner on, and uh, it really is a great interview. Um, but before we get into it, I just wanted to remind everyone to follow us on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Doc, D-O-C as in documentary, because again, this podcast is going to be a documentary after it is a podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or anything we've missed, please send it to our email address, missingmoramurray at gmail.com. And it's been about a month, and we've been getting some really, really good feedback on this. And I just wanted to thank everyone for contributing. And I also wanted to remind our listeners that one of our main goals is to shake out the fact from the fiction. But another one of our goals is to identify what it is about this case that draws these people in. And once they're in, they either become legitimate investigators or they give up, and usually they give up because of a third group, and it's a group who, for some reason, they're unable to contribute in a mature and respectful way. I want to thank those who email us, who tweet us, the ones who are respectful, they want to help, but at the same time, I also want to thank the third group as well, because I think that, in a way, they're, they're kind of proving our point here. Joining us on the podcast today is author James Renner. He is the author of the upcoming book about Maura Murray called True Crime Addict. He is also the writer of the very popular blog, maramurray.blogspot.com. Welcome to the show, James. 
Hey, thanks for having me. I, I've I've been listening, and uh, um, you know, every episode, every podcast gets better, and uh, I, I can tell that it's really engaging people again because pe- more people are coming back to my blog, and the discussion has kind of kickstarted again. So, so well done. Yeah, nice job. That's great. Uh, thank you, thank you for saying that, and thank you for uh, your blog. I mean, all this information is fantastic. Hey, thanks, thanks. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to do something a little different with this case, and, and uh, you know, when I started it, I, I wanted to whenever I got a document or an interview, instead of the the old way of of journalism where you kind of keep those close to you and don't share them because you don't want to get scooped. Um, I wanted to share everything, and in my mind, that generates more conversation. It takes us down more avenues. It kicks up more clues if you can just be completely transparent. And so, yeah, you can go on the blog, and you can find literally more than 500 pages of documents about this case uh, that I got through courts and public records requests, and you can uh, learn more about the people involved with through these interviews, and uh, um, I, I think it worked well. And I just want to say, uh, again, thank you for coming on the show. I just want to let the uh, listeners know, those who don't know James Renner, uh, my search for Maura Murray, if you just Google that, you'll find his blog. And the information on the blog is, uh, it's definitely a well. It's all there, and it's all done um, in a very journalistic sense. Uh, James is uh, somebody who will take the punches like no one else i mean he's been he's been under a lot of uh, fire for some of the things that he'll write but uh you know he'll respond in a mature and professional way and he'll keep going he'll keep going because it's this desire to uncover the truth uh something something's amiss here and he wants to figure out what it is and there's really no ulterior motive here once you start reading into his blog posts you're going to get sucked in and you're going to realize just how much of a pro uh this guy is Tell us a little bit more about the book um, before we get too into the Moramari case altogether, or at least our timeline version of it. Um, tell us why it's called True Crime Addict. That's a very good question, right? Um, well, it's called True Crime Addict uh, because it's um, it's about my search for uh, Maura Murray, and it gets into some personal space. Uh, it, it it gets into my personal life a, a little bit, and it, and it talks about um, the way that we become obsessed with cases like this. And, and I was certainly guilty of that. And this case kind of ran my life for a couple of years. And, um, every spare moment I had was devoted to thinking and writing and looking into this case. And, um, I think a lot of people, especially with this case can identify with that and understand that. And, um, and it kind of gets into why, you know, why me, you know, why am I looking into this case? Um, so, um, but at the same time, it's still, the majority of the book is still very much about Mora, um, and the search for what, uh, wh- where she is, the search for Mora and what happened to her. Um, so just because it's called true crime addict instead of like missing Mora Murray or something like that doesn't mean it's not the definitive book of the Mora Murray case. It will be everything that is important to this case is in the book. Uh, there's some new surprises that will be in there, I'm sure, for people, um, some new clues to pick apart. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to sharing it with everybody in the spring. Did you find it impossible to write a book like this about more and about the case and all the time you've put into it without having gone into your background a little bit? Uh, yes, um, mostly because at some point I became a character 
uh, in the case um, because it got to the point where, for a couple reasons, one, uh, the family started to release press releases um, that named me specifically. Um, they started talking about me in the media in Boston Magazine. Um, they had to specifically respond to um, my um, reporting. Um, and there was also this character, Alden Olson, who uh, came forward and started to threaten both me and my family. So I had to address those things because it, it, it then was part of the story. You know, so um, it's, it's impossible to remain completely objective um, and separate from the story when the main characters are pulling you into it. I went into it thinking my motives were completely altruistic, right? Um, trying to, you know, find this girl that's missing. And uh, at the very beginning, from day one, Fred Murray wanted nothing to do with this book. Um, this is before I spoke to anybody. The first person I reached out to was Fred Murray. And I reached out to him through Helena Murray after leaving several messages with Fred and not having them returned. Helena is kind of the spokesperson of the family, although she's not directly related to any of the Murrays. Um, she's related through marriage. And um, I relayed the message, and the message came back, Fred does not want this book written. And as a journalist, beginning on a new cold case, when the father of a missing woman says he doesn't want any any more press, any national exposure of his, of his uh, daughter's case, um, that raises some serious red flags. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Such a simple question. Very complicated answer. Um, I wish I knew 100%. I have my own theories as to why Fred doesn't want or never wanted this book written. I'm convinced that Fred knows more than he's said. Um, and if you look at his initial statements to the police, um, his uh, statement to UMass police, um, you can see that he's, he's outright lied to the people that are trying to find his daughter. He's changed his story, especially about the events and the days leading up to Moore's disappearance. And if any reporter, not just me, if any reporter pushes him on that and asks, tell me specifically what was happening in those days leading up to her disappearance, Tell me what you were doing at, at, at the university that weekend, in specifics. He will say, nothing that happened before matters. What matters is my daughter's missing and we need to find her. Well, the first thing you do in any missing person case is to find out, you backtrack the days leading up to their disappearance because whatever caused them to disappear um, it, you know, has begun in those days. And in order to find out where she went, we have to understand where she came from. And he's always tried to stymie reporters and police in, in, in knowing more about Moore's past. When did you realize that this case wasn't simply about the all-American girl gone missing? Uh, yeah, they, they really build her up to be, you know, this, this perfect um, young woman. I think Fred is even quoted as saying once, you know, if all the trouble she ever got into her in her 21 years of life was was this, meaning, you know, when she, she went missing, um, then that's not such a big deal. Um, it, or I think that was actually in reference to when she crashed the car that weekend um, when he was in UMass. But, 
you know, at that time, see, again, that's Fred Murray not being truthful because by then he knew she had been kicked out of West Point or at least shown the door. Um, and he knew about, he had to have known about the credit card problems at UMass. So he's already kind of spinning his own story there. When did you realize that this was a spin? I had a hunch fairly early on that we weren't seeing the full picture of uh, Maura Murray, um, just in the way that she was described by uh, Fred, uh, specifically, and, and friends and family. Nobody can quite be that perfect. You know, we all have skeletons in our closet. Um, the question is whether anything in Maura's past led her to disappear. Uh, you know, was there motive somewhere? So, um, I started peeling back these layers, you know, like an onion and, and, you know, deeper and deeper. And, and the more I peeled back, the more weird things I found, um, you know, one of the first things I did was to send, um, FOIA requests, public records requests to all the jurisdictions in which Mora ever lived. Um, so that meant Hanson, that meant areas of Boston, areas around West Point and areas around UMass. And I just said, Hey, this, these were form letters that went out to police departments. And I said, hey, here's Maura Murray, birth date, May 4th. Um, I'm looking for any incident reports involving this person. And that kicked up this report from the University of Massachusetts in which uh, we learned that Maura um, got in trouble for stealing somebody's credit card number and ordering a bunch of food. Um, and then... Yeah, there's the report of when the police confronted her about that, and she's obviously lying to the police, and they've got her picture there that you know you guys have gotten into before. She looks like a totally different person. Yeah. And then there were you know rumors of other things. You know, here's a cadet at West Point, but now she's in the nursing student at University of Massachusetts. Why is that? Um, that took me a little while because cadet records at West Point are not public record until um, it is proven that they have uh, died. Um, and I think that might be one of the reasons why her family has never declared her dead, um, you know, so that you can't get out the records. Because um, they could have done that as, as early back as uh, 2007. So uh, what I had to do was I had to track down people that knew her at West Point, and that's how I found the roommate that, that talked about how uh, the, the time where Morris stole makeup from West Point. And that, to me, said a lot about Morris' character. And a lot about who she was, because to me, it almost seemed like a cry for help, because who in their right mind is going to steal from the most secure military facility in the United States, Fort Knox? There's something going on there. Yeah. Um, and she met Billy because uh, because of her legal troubles at West Point. I don't know if m many people realize this, but he was a cadet liaison to the judicial system there at West Point. And he didn't directly work on her case, but he certainly helped her. And that's kind of how they met, um, you know, during the fallout of this incident in Fort Knox. Um, so, yeah, there were those rumblings. Those are the ones that uh, that are there for everybody to see in the reports. And then there were these rumors of um, of darker things that happened at UMass and uh, these uh, parties at the pool that degenerated into, um, you know, debauchery and and uh, uh, nights of sex and, you know, who knows what. Um but uh, those were rumors to begin with, and uh, I eventually tracked down three men uh, that were on the track teams with her, uh, two of which uh, had uh, knowledge of this, one who participated, and uh, they've gone on record with me um, verifying that these things happened, and uh, 
painting a very different picture of of Maura Murray, the all-American girl. So uh, that makeup that she stole, I just realized it's kind of symbolic of uh, of maybe a girl sort of, <laughs> I mean, I know women wear makeup every day, but sort of painting a mask on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. Something very psychological happened there. I mean, there's just no other explanation for it. I think, uh, uh, I don't know. It, it was, it's, maybe she was looking for a reason to leave West Point. Um, some, you know, something that she um, could take out of her, out of her control or, or make it so that she couldn't stay. Do you think her relationship with, with Billy Roush was some kind of manipulation on her part? Or do you think she was really in love with him? Um, I think Maura Murray was a sociopath. Um, and whether or not you believe that sociopaths have the ability to experience what other people would call love, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think Maura Murray was at her best when she was with Billy Roush. And I think maybe there's a part of her that was trying to change and trying to strive to be a better person. And Billy certainly brought that, that person out. They had their problems like every other couple. Um, but I've talked to, talked to Bill and, uh, he's a stand-up guy, uh, and his family's a good family. And, uh, she was certainly happy and safe when she was with the Roushes here in Ohio. Um, but then, you know, at the end of the summers, at the end of the holidays, she get pulled back into UMass and, you know, she became that, that girl from Hanson, um, who had her secret troubles. And that's when she'd start to get in, into trouble again. I want to go back to something you said earlier about her family not declaring her dead. And that kind of contradicts what we've been reading and what we've been hearing about her family seemingly giving up and assuming that she's never coming back. I mean, am I wrong in thinking that Fred has said many times that you know, she was either abducted or she wandered off to kill herself or I guess I'll go to the great beyond never knowing what happened to my little girl. Yeah. If, and they still, but at the same time, they don't, they don't uh, declare her as, as dead. And that would, that, you, you'd think that that would bring some closure to it. It just seems very open-ended and it seems very contradictory to me. If they believed Maura Murray was dead, and was taken by a dirt bag and killed, like Fred Murray says, they would have declared her dead by now. Um, no doubt about it. Now, if you declare somebody dead, um, some things will happen um, that are, you know, if they're not really dead, are going to be problematic for that person um, regarding Social Security um, and benefits and, and tax information. Um, Maura Murray could still be out there. She could, she could still, and I believe she is out there, but she could, she could specifically be here in the United States still. I happen to think that she's probably in Canada, but she could be in the United States. She could still be working under the name Maura Murray. She could be paying taxes and nobody would know. Um, you know, the, the police have, uh, difficulty getting subpoenas for, for information like that, especially from the federal government. It's quite possible they never have actually been able to do that. So she could still be just laying low. Um, this has happened before. There was a case, I can't remember the woman's name. But uh, she left one day, this is in the Midwest, and moved, um, I think, 200 miles away. She was working at a diner, um, never changed her name, never changed her social security number, was still working. Um, 
her family thought she was dead and missing for 15 years until um, somebody tracked her down. So, um, yeah, I think back to the question, you know, why isn't she why hasn't she been declared dead? I think it's because the Murrays know that she's not dead. I think you might be onto something because it does definitely seem like they're not looking anymore for her. They, I, I, no, they absolutely are not looking for more Murray anymore. Yeah. So she could be living not only in Canada using her own name and her own social security number, but she could be living in the United States using her own name, social security number, and we may not even know. Yeah. Yeah, the FBI aren't involved. The FBI are the only people that could get at that information very easily. The local police in Haverhill, they're not going to, you know, the state police in New Hampshire, they're going to have a lot of trouble getting through to Social Security and, and getting the subpoenas needed in order to find out if she's still filing taxes, you know. Um, she could still be out there working, using her name. She could be living 10 miles from the crash site and just and just keeping a low profile. You know what I, you know, I, I think about this a lot. And uh, I'll tell you, if, if I ever um, if I ever need to, and, and I'm digging a hole right now, but if I ever need to disappear and move somewhere, I'm not going to change my name. I'm not going to change my social security number. I'm going to eat like a fiend. I'm going to gain 100 pounds. You know, nobody's going to recognize me. And I'll just live my life very fat and happy. You know, <laughs> maybe that's what she did. So tell us a little bit about the days before the accident, um, the party at the uh, dorm, the accident that she had with her father's car. Um, any details that you have there? Because Tim and I have spoken about this, and you know, we'll si- we'll kind of get sidetracked into speculation. And there's just there's so much out there that yeah. is, that may or may not be true. And uh, we, you know, part of this whole thing is to just bring it right down to the the facts and and the the truth. And you know, based on the the diligent investigations that you've done. Thanks. Here's a fact about that weekend before she disappeared that I think we just gloss over because um, of the way it's been presented. But she disappears on Monday. What happens the weekend before that? Her dad comes to visit. Is that a coincidence? You know, my parents didn't visit that often when I was in in college. Um, It doesn't seem like Fred was there every weekend, but he's there the weekend before she disappears. To me, that's a. It's not just happenstance. It's not just part of the case. It 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 speaks to. Uh, it's it's another one of those things that all added up together might, you know, lead us to some sort of answer as to why she decided to disappear. There's another thing that I don't think you guys have gotten too far into um, that I find very interesting about that weekend. Um, so Fred comes into town, and he says he said this several times that he's he came there in order to help her get a new car. A um, couple problems with that. One, we've all seen the car. It wasn't in that bad of shape. Um, you know, we haven't heard it run, but it got her to New Hampshire, so it must have been running okay. It certainly looked okay. Um, I, you know, in college, I drove you know four hundred dollar beater cars that you know looked terrible, but still got me where I needed to go. Um, but he comes in the weekend before she disappears to get her a new car. Even though everybody I've talked to that were friends with her at UMass um, that saw her that weekend, she never mentioned to them that she was looking for a car, that that's why Fred came in. So they forgot to mention that they were looking for a car when they got together with friends. Um, But Fred had to explain to police um, how he came to have $4,000 with him that weekend. He showed up at UMass with $4,000 in cash, and he tells them 
you know, hey, look, uh, yeah, I had $4,000 with me. Uh, you might need to know that. And they're like, well, tell us a little bit more about that, Fred. And Fred says, well, yeah, um, we were in a hurry. So on the way to UMass, I stopped and withdrew $400 in cash from several different ATMs because that was the limit. Now, now to interrupt, sorry. Yeah, no, go for it. When you say them, you're referring to when he's telling them, who are you referring to? The police. Okay, so this is a this is a police interview. This, yep, this is Fred's interview with police is when this comes out. Okay, go on. Thank you. Yeah, so um, you know, think about that for a second. Who who would do that? Um, why why does Fred not write a check for the this car? Any reputable car company, even it, it, and, and they're talking about going to dealerships, but even if they go to like you know, uh, the back pages of a newspaper and, and find somebody that's selling this at their home, anybody's going to take a personal check. Um, you know, cash, they, they might say is easier, but then why didn't Fred think forward enough to stop at his bank and withdraw that cash in one sum before he came to um, the University of Massachusetts? His story makes no logical sense. Yeah. And he said that in his interview with police a full two and a half years after Mora went missing? He might have actually said that. He gave a statement to, I think it was the University of um, Massachusetts Amherst Police. Um, you're, and the, there's this idea, and he did talk to the police in the day or two after she was missing. But then he stops talking and stops cooperating with police, especially the state police in New Hampshire refuses to talk to homicide detectives um, for two and a half years. And when he does, he shows up with lawyers. I think that's kind of where you're getting at. But yeah, um, yeah he did mention in the early days this idea about cash. And I think he had to do that because, that you know, he was worried that they were going to look at his finances and find that, you know, he withdrew 4000 or somebody withdrew $4,000 in cash. From several ATMs. Yeah, I guess that's why I was asking, because I, I wondered if he was volunteering that information because he knew that police already knew that or were going to find that out anyway, and he was trying to beat them to it. I think he was trying to beat them to it. Yeah, okay. You know, another explanation is, and a much more logical explanation for why somebody would withdraw, you know, ATMs from, you know, $400 from each ATM in several different locations is that it wasn't Fred that was pulling that money. Um, I'm not saying that that's what happened, but that's certainly another explanation. Um, and it's more logical than the story that Fred presents. Mm -hmm. So someone takes his card, maybe without him knowing, and, I mean, they would need the pin for the for the withdrawals. Yeah, yeah, right. And, right. and, ob and obviously going to several different ATMs, that would be because you're, you're only allowed a certain limit from one ATM, maybe? Exactly. Or he found himself in a situation where he needed a lot of money right now. And the banks were closed, and he couldn't wait. But that situation is not a car. Um, it was something he needed to do that he couldn't write a check for. Um, so there are a couple better explanations for that money than, than anything Fred has ever given us. It is a little suspect now that I'm thinking about it. You're going to car dealerships. You don't need $4,000. You, you, can, you can put down $1,500. Right. You can put down $500 for a car. And and you can you can put down a hundred dollars to hold the car for you, and then 
you know, on Monday when the banks are open, you go back with what you've decided you want to put down for a down payment. So when you're saying this seems like something where it's he needed cash right then and there, he needed cash fast, that I mean, that sounds like somebody. Yeah, you're right. That sounds like somebody who's running around trying to pull cash as fast as they can. Yeah. So why? Were, were, why were they pulling out cash that fast? Was it because somebody needed to disappear or because somebody needed a lot of money to fix a problem? Um, I think the only person that – there are a few people that know the answer to that question. And one of them is Fred Murray and one of them's not here. What happened to the cash? Ah, that's a very good question. Fred has never answered that question. That's a lot of money to me. I wouldn't know what I'm taking out that money for and where it's going. <laughs> right? Especially – it's a lot of money for Fred Murray, who's living out of a hotel at the time in Connecticut. It's a lot of money for Fred Murray because at that time his house in Weymouth was being foreclosed on for lack of payment uh, for, for taxes. Uh, he wasn't, you know, the, the, it was delinquent in taxes. So why wasn't he using the money to cover the house? Um, it doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't I'm, make sense. I'm probably reacting exactly how the listeners are reacting right now. I'm shaking my head. I'm shaking my head and inside I'm going, wow, that is – his house was being foreclosed on and all of a sudden it was more important for him to spontaneously and and kind of irrationally take out as much money as possible to buy his daughter a car when the car she had was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, that's, it's a lie. He's lying. Um, and, and so why? You know, why is he lying? What's he lying about? Do we know that there's any surveillance footage from those ATMs of Fred or anybody else removing the, that money? If I was a detective on the case, I would be very interested to, to pull those ATM videos to find out if it was Fred that was withdrawing that money. Um, that would get us closer to the answer there. Um, my, my hunch is that they didn't do that. Um, and now it's far too late to go back and get those ATM videos. You know? Why do you think they didn't do that? I think initially the police thought, well, initially, they, no doubt about it, they thought this was um, a case of drunk driving and that the driver had walked away and would come back for the car. Uh, you know, about two or three days later, then it became um, a state case uh, with the New Hampshire State Police, and they treated it as though they were interested in the possibility of suicide, but they also saw it as a possibility that Mora had simply walked away. And neither of those scenarios would it be important to get the ATM footage from those machines. On previous episodes, we had uh, covered the the topic of this party that reportedly took place um, before Mora crashed her father's car at UMass. And since we mentioned it, uh, it's come to light that there may be, or for us at least, that there may never have been a party at all. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of questions about that. My hunch is that there was a party of some sort. Let's look at what we know about the party. We know that Mora was with two people, the night Kate Markopoulos and Sarah Alfieri. And this party supposedly happened at Sarah Alfieri's place, which has been described, and I believe it was probably in the dorm at some point, but Somebody along the way has also said that it could have happened at a place off campus. Um, we don't know for sure. Um, I've talked to Kate Markopoulos a couple times. And the first interview I had with her was, it was very odd. 
I've talked to, I was a reporter in Cleveland for about seven years and true crime became kind of my beat. And I, I got to a point where I can hear when somebody is being deceptive, not all the time, but uh, I, I based on their answers. And her answers to me were very, um, you could tell were very rehearsed um, and very short. Uh, she didn't expand on anything. And that to me usually means that um, they're hiding something around those facts, uh, a bigger picture. And uh, what's frustrating about that, the party more than anything, is Kate and Sarah have described this party as having a large number of people there, that it was a small room, a small place, and it was like wall-to-wall people. Now, when I asked Kate who else was at that party, she told me, oh, it was so long ago, I don't remember anybody that was there. I've tried so hard to remember, and I, I just can't remember. Well, the police asked Kate, like days after Maura disappeared, who was at that party. And she told them then that she doesn't remember. Not a single person. She couldn't identify them. So there's some deception going on there. And again, you got to ask why and what it has to do with Maura's disappearance. Why doesn't Kate and Sarah explain what happened at the party, who was there, why don't they provide more information about it? Something happened there that they don't want to share. Um, and until they do, we don't know if it has anything directly to do with Moore's disappearance or if they're just embarrassed about what might have occurred at that party. So that's a, that's a very big question for me. Yeah, I find it completely hard to believe that years later, but, you know, especially days later, they don't remember a single person. That's Unless they were too drunk to remember, a blackout drunk, that's just a flat-out lie. Helena Murray um, told me when we were speaking on the phone one day that Sarah Alfieri told her story to Fred, and she will only ever tell Fred, and she will never tell anybody else. So what in the world did she tell Fred? What was she being asked? What did you ask uh, Helena Murray? I asked Helena what happened at that party. What do you know about the party? And her answer was? It got to the point where I asked her um, to get me in touch with Sarah. And she flat out refused. She said, no, you know, Sarah's not going to talk to anybody. She only, She will only tell her story to Fred. She's done that once. She's not going to talk to anybody about it. Eventually, I actually tracked down Sarah, and she was very hard to find. Um, And I actually found Julie Murray easier to find than uh, Sarah Alfieri. And Julie Murray worked worked for a contractor who was uh, contracted to the CIA. So Sarah's, in my mind, she's keeping a very low profile. Um, But I tracked her down, and I showed up at her uh, apartment one day, early evening, and I knocked on the door, and she answered, and I introduced myself, um, and I said, uh, I have a couple questions about the party uh, before Maura disappeared. And all she said was, um, well, first thing she said was, how did you find me? And she was terrified. How did you find me? And I said, you know, I, I, I work with a private investigator. I'm very good at finding people. Um, but I really just, if you could answer a couple questions about that party. Um, and she slammed the door in my face um, and wouldn't say a word. She said, 
I can't say anything about that and then slam the door in my face. So I left my number um, and asked her to contact me when she felt a little more comfortable doing so. And she never did. Was your heart racing when you were walking up to knock on her door? Yeah, yeah, because uh, part of my, you know, in the back of my mind, I wondered, you know, am I going to knock on this door and is Maura Murray going to answer it? Um, you know, I, I was ready for, for anything. I was expecting anything. Um, I didn't really expect Sarah to react uh, the way she did. Sarah's frightened about something uh, related to this case. I don't know if it's just that she's she's scared of having her name associated with whatever happened at that party or um, if she's afraid of what Fred might do if she talks. Uh, I don't know what Sarah's afraid of, but she's afraid of something. Who, in your opinion, is the most intriguing character in this whole thing? For me, the most intriguing character in the Moore Murray case, hands down, is Kate Markopoulos. She's an interesting character. That? Uh, that just came out of the blue for me. I was not expecting you to say Kate Markopoulos. Really? Yeah. Well, yeah. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kate Markopoulos has an interesting history, um, and it makes her what? It makes her an outlier. She's an interesting character because of her past. Um, her father was uh, sent to prison for several years for trying to blow up their neighbor um, with a homemade bomb. Um, the neighbor came home. There was this package on the front stoop or in the back stoop. It was by the door. The neighbor goes to move it, and it blows up in his face, nearly kills him. Um, the police quickly focus on Kate's father. There's a trial, and uh, he's sent to prison. He's convicted. Now, uh, that happened when Kate was uh, a young um, teenager, um, a young, a young girl, and uh, the father was adamant. You know, yes, that was my bomb, but I didn't place it. I don't know who put the bomb there. Um, so, I have a lot of questions about that case. It, it certainly, um, you know, the, the the father being in prison and then getting out, it certainly shaped Kate's formative years. Now, Kate goes to college with Mora and meets up, and they become fast friends. Um, Kate uh, is with Mora at some of these parties um, that take place inside the um, swimming arena at, uh, after hours. Um, some of the track team members have, have uh, a key to this place, the upperclassmen. Um, and she's with Mora when Mora is acting out. Um, she knows Mora's deep, dark secrets better than anybody. And she is keeping things um, from being known, specifically about this party, specifically about Mora, and she's kept them secret when these details might help try to find her friend. Um, Kate Markopoulos disappears for a couple days um, after Mora disappears, um, around the time of her disappearance. She's, nobody, nobody from UMass that was friends with, with Kate or that knew Kate from the team um, knew where she was. Um, she just stopped showing up. Um, and then she shows up uh, looking upset, you know, for, for practice one day. And that's when the detectives also show up and they start questioning people on the team. Hmm. So I would love to, to you know, know exactly what it is that Kate Markopoulos knows. So you're, you're saying both Kate and Maura went missing, but Kate came back. 
same time. It depends on what your definition of missing is. Kate, Kate wasn't around, right? Um, you know, she was never reported missing. But you talk to the members of, of the, the team and they're like, yeah, uh, Kate dropped off the map. And then when she showed up, that's around the time that we learned what happened to Mora, that Mora was missing. Um, you know, so they had assumed that Kate was off upset about the order, ordeal. But, uh, you know, I don't know where she was. You know, she won't talk to me anymore, you know, about that. So um, I don't know. Now, Kate also went to uh, the – it was Kate and Fred and Mora that went out before the party. They went yep. out for drinks. Yep. Uh, Kate was with Mora and Fred um, before this this weird party that night. Um, they went to the brew pub by the university and had a couple beers. Um, Fred picked Kate up at some sort of lot um, on campus, and the three of them ended up at the pub. They stopped and bought some liquor on the way. We're on the way back. Um, liquor for the party later that night. So, yeah. Kate was right there, ground, you know, uh, ground zero um, for everything that happened to Mora in the days leading to her disappearance. Okay, that's a lot of information to process. It's uh, items that we've covered in our earlier episodes uh, with our own um, speculation. So I think what we're going to do right now is uh, let our listeners kind of absorb all that and... Uh, We'll, we'll continue this uh, at a later date, if that's okay with you, James. Yeah, anytime. I'm here. Amazing. Thank you very much for joining us. And yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, you know, uh, keep up the good work. And uh, it's, you know, it's definitely helping the case. It's, it's getting the discussion moving again. Thanks a lot. We appreciate you uh, supporting us. And, uh, yeah, we, we uh, love your blog. And uh, make sure to check out your book, True Crime Addict, in the spring of 2016. Yes, please. Well, special thanks to James Renner for appearing on the podcast. That was a pretty interesting interview. What do you think about that, Lance? Yeah, indeed. That was interesting. His take on this case is uh, about as pure as it comes. You know, he's been right there. He's been talking to the people who were directly involved in all this. So it, it's kind of tough to counter any of his points. Yeah, such a good interview. And I'm just downright surprised at a lot of the things he says so you know so surprised that it's going to take me a few days to digest all this information yeah exactly and i think our uh, i think our listeners need a few days I, I feel like we caught that off at the right time as well um there's a lot of information and he just talked for the you know right around 40 minutes or so so it's uh it's a lot of information in a short period of time and once again, just proving that when you start to unturn one stone in this, it just leads to a, uh, a different scenario, different weirdness. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.